Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Scott Titsworth. He's Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University and one of the world's leading scholars in the area of classroom communication effectiveness. He's been dean since 2010, and in 2009, he was named Presidential Teacher, the highest teaching honor awarded at Ohio University. One week before the important 2018 midterm elections, we're talking about the importance of words in public debate and the role of words in spreading hate. Dean Titsworth, I know that you're a specialist in language and communication. Talk about the power of communication as it comes from a person of authority, like like a president or a congressman or a senator. Did their words carry any more weight than just a, an average person? Sure. I, you know, I think in a very obvious sense that when people are elected to public office, uh, there is a certain um, impact that they have when they speak publicly. And so, you know, the phrase elections matter. Um, one of the ways that they matter is that uh, those individuals who are elected to public office have a larger meg- megaphone. Um, they're able to talk about public issues in ways that um, forces people to listen to them um, or provides opportunities for people to listen to them. And so, you know, on a very uh, rudimentary level, of course, of course, they have more weight uh, in terms of what it is that they say rhetorically. I, I would, I would back up though and think about um, how people who are speaking in the public sphere set a, uh, a rhetorical scene through which citizens like you and I and people listening um, give meaning to the events going on around them. So, so let me unpack that just a little bit. Sure. Um, all of us sort of live our world through a series of interconnected stories or what we in, in the field might call narratives, right? And so, you know, you and I, um, people listening, we have these stories that go on around us. And, you know, one of our most important jobs uh, as human beings uh, is to hear those stories and assign meaning to those stories. And some of those stories we adopt for our own other stories we we completely abandon and, in fact, um, 
you know, want to argue against. That's why uh, in, in the public sphere, you have individuals on different sides of debates that, that vehemently disagree with one another. Um, you know, abortion, uh, the global warming. You know, to, to take a side on that debate is, is not sitting down and looking very rationally at all of the arguments for or against any particular behavior. It's really trying to figure out which story you want to be a part of. And so when we lead our lives through narratives, really, it's first us adopting a, a sort of narrative point of view that we feel comfortable with. But the people that set the frame for that narrative, like politicians uh, and other prominent uh, public figures, they sort of create the scene through which that narrative is understood by all of us. And so when you have a public figure, whether it's the president or, or other elected officials, uh, using certain terminologies, um, in other words, a system of language to frame that narrative, we might be adopting a narrative because of personal convictions, but then that language system starts to shape how that narrative fits around us. And so, for instance, if I, if I personally said that I was a liberal or a conservative, that would be adopting a certain narrative point of view. But what's happening is that the public discourse that goes on in the public sphere is starting to shift the meanings of what that narrative is. And so, you know, what's happening, um, you know, I think in, in the public sphere right now is that the narratives that for decades all of us have sort of ascribed to for different reasons have started to become redefined in ways that means it's much more difficult for us to see how the narrative that we ascribe to could be compatible with the narratives that other people ascribe to. In other words, you don't have that, that sense of trying to find common ground because the language that that comes to sort of give definition to the narratives that we're all a part of and, and buy into um, doesn't allow for that common ground anymore. And so, you know, in a more abstract sense, I think that the way that the public figures' uh, discourses um, are impacting us is that they're reshaping the narratives that have been a part of our sociopolitical culture for decades in ways that makes it very much more difficult for us to find common ground among those narratives. We used to, as a layperson, not schooled in your particular academic discipline, as, as a layperson, we used to have civil discourse about disagreements. As you framed it, uh, different narratives, uh, you and I could have a different narrative but have a discussion about it or right. or even an argument with lowercase a. I, we, would, we would debate it, uh, go back and forth uh, on it. It seems, however, that that has been eroded. And as you're talking about narrative shifting, there's a degree of hostility that's going with that to a point where it's no longer civil discourse, it's combat. Yeah, definitely. So, so an example of, of what I was talking about previously that relates to um, the observation that you just made. So, you know, when I was growing up in southeast Kansas, um, the son of a railroad engineer, union guy, um, you know, we were a democratic family, and, and that was because of, you know, my father's political orientations, but, but more importantly, because he was a union guy. And um, he, he believed that the Democratic Party at that time was more representative of, of what would benefit uh, people in his walk of life, if you will. Um, my best friend 
um, was the son of a prominent business person in that small town, um, very much a Republican family. But yet we were best friends. Our families got together regularly uh, to have fun. Um, you know, we went to their house, they came to ours, et cetera. Um, and so it was a way of being where you could have different perspectives on politics, different perspectives on social issues, uh, but you still understood that the sense of community was much stronger than that. Uh, what, what I see happening um, by and large right now in the, the national discourses, but, but also even local discourses, is that rather than taking the perspective that I've got my view and you've got yours, but there's still something that unites us, the language that I see happening right now sort of says, if you're not part of my worldview, you're almost inhuman uh, because you're not thinking the way that I am. I think that's true for not, not just Republicans and not just Democrats. I see that on local school board elections where the political affiliation of a Demo- of the Democratic or Republican Party is largely irrelevant to the issues that are being debated. And mostly unknown. <laughs> yes, mostly unknown, yeah. And so, you know, I think that what, what I see happening that, that um, is uh, saddening, uh, is uh, concerning, uh, is that that language system that comes to define the narratives that we ascribe to now carries with it baggage uh, that says – uh, you're either with me and in, in my in-group or you're in an out-group that is completely incompatible with what it is that, that I presuppose. That's not the way that I remember it growing up. Now, you know, that might be some idealistic Southeast Kansas memory, but, but, but I get the sense that that's been a real cultural shift um, over, you know, the last uh, uh, couple decades that is really heightened now in ways that we've never seen it before. Over about the last year and, and certainly acutely over the last six months, uh, we've heard the word tribalism mm-hmm. used uh, to to describe groups of people uh, with certain political affiliations. But I want to break that down. It, it sounds like what you're talking about has been uh, morphed into you're either in my tribe or you aren't. Yeah, and if definitely. you're in my tribe and believe the the beliefs I have and and the the words I speak and the discourse I have, then you're fine. If you're not, then you're part of the enemy. Yes, very is, much is, so. is is that word? What does that word mean to you as a as a person who studies this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a good way of describing it. And tribalism is an accurate word um, in academic literature. We might call it in groups and out groups, but it means the same thing. And you know, again, thinking thinking back um, in my own experiences, but but I think I think scholarly literature and and other people's experiences would back this up. That that in decades past, we we still belonged with different tribes. Um, we might have had a, a political affiliation, but we also probably had sort of a socioeconomic affiliation. We had a religious affiliation, and that list goes on and on. There are education differences. Um, and so we all belong to different tribes. But what, what I recall um, in my own experiences and also you know, can point to in the literature is that many times um, if you look at, at 
decades past, those those different tribal orientations didn't necessarily align. And so I might have a certain political orientation, but that could potentially run in different ways than my religious orientation viewpoints, right? And the values that I have as as adopting a particular religion, you know, might be different than 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 what I would ascribe to in my politics, and so on and so forth. Um, However, what I see now is a, a, a rather dramatic alignment of these different tribes so that I don't internally, in my own you know, morality and my own way of thinking about things rationally, have this internal discourse where I have to think about the fact that I might have a certain religious viewpoint related to um, a particular doctrinal belief that is somehow in conflict with certain things that I might naturally ascribe to politically. That internal dialogue that causes all of us to question how we're going to align on different issues with all of these different tribes. allows us to evolve. Right. It allows us to evolve because we're questioning, you know, we're, we're putting these internal dialogues and conversation with themselves. And I'm trying to understand as a Christian, how does that align? Align with political orientations that I have, and how does that align with certain beliefs I have about socioeconomic differences and and poverty and and the, and the results of that? How do all all of those things coalesce? What I see happening now is that um, it, by and large, those different tribal connections that we have are becoming aligned in such a way that there's no counter voice that we have in in our own heads, um, and and that's something that you know makes it much more likely that. I'm going to define more starkly the the in-group that I belong to and more starkly the people that do not belong to that in-group, in other words, the other tribes. Those, those lines of demarcation are much more black and white, um, much less likely for me as a person to see how they can be permeated. So we have the, this the chasm between, the, the, between groups. Uh, then you have political leaders and and I'll just say the the president recently but but there are others as well that are using terms that seem to resonate with certain groups like um, just over the last week to 10 days the president has been been using the term nationalism mm-hmm. calling himself a nationalist uh, so there's been debate on various newscasts what that means, but uh, that that's uh, as we refer to it in the vernacular, a dog whistle to certain to certain groups right. uh, that that he's uh, playing to. Um, we've we've seen the attack on media uh, as being the true enemy of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about the use of those words and and perhaps what's intended by those, but but what do they actually do in 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 the overall environment of discourse? Yeah, when I when I first when you and I first started talking about this, and I yeah. was I was talking about um, the the language and terminology shifting the nature of the narratives that we belong to. So so what's happening with with some of this language in, in my estimation is that it's a rhetorical um, I don't know if strategy is the right word, but it's certainly an adopted rhetorical move on the part of uh, certain politicians, most notably the president, uh, where they are defining those boundaries of what the in group or the the 
preferred tribe for them actually is. And so, um, you know, when you when you hear words like uh, the fake media, or when you hear um, different characterizations of the entire population of immigrants to the United States, uh, th- those, in my estimation, are where the boundaries of what constitutes the in-group from their perspective is being very clearly drawn. Uh, and again, as I just said, not permeable. And so, you know, the, the implication potentially is that members of the media, members of the immigrant population that want to come to the United States, regardless of where they're from, are, are by and large not part of that group uh, that is considered the in-crowd, if you will. Let me say one other thing about this. As I uh, was um, reflecting back on what I do consider to be a use of language that, that um, you know, for lack of a better term, divides rather than unifies, um, you know, we started to see that clearly in the last presidential election when um, uh, Trump um, was using similar rhetorical moves uh, to try to defeat, and eventually he did defeat, uh, Republicans in the primaries, uh, and then Hillary Clinton in the general election. Um, if you think back on um, the the many months, the uh, greater than a year uh, that that election cycle was happening, um, starting with the Republican uh, primary candidates, uh, they were individually picked out uh, and and labeled in certain ways. So, uh, you know. Lion Ted. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, there were nicknames that, you know, that played well with the public um, and, and eventually I think was, uh, you know, a big part of the uh, success that, that Trump had. Um, so so what's important about this is that I think that, that Trump as a, as, a, as a rhetor or a speaker, if you will, um, started this strategy uh, directing it towards individuals that he was in battle against. Okay, that happens. Um, you know, a battle is a battle, and so you pull out all stops, and, and that includes how you verbally characterize your opponents. What I've seen happening now, though, uh, is that what used to be attacks on individuals that used those types of nicknames have now become really um, ways of characterizing entire groups of people. And so um, rather than picking out individuals in the media and calling them fake journalists, he picks out the entire media and calls the entire media fake news, right? Um, rather than picking out um, which and, he, and won't enumerate which ones are fake and yeah, which exactly. ones are not. Yeah, it's characterized as an entire class. Um, and, and that same subtlety that, that could be there when talking about immigration is not there. It's immigrants. And, and the archetype of what immigration is, um, according to that rhetorical frame, becomes you know this caravan uh, that, that is uh, supposedly marching to invade Invasion, the United States. Invasion, that's right. Yes. Yeah, using terminology like that. And so th- the point that I'm trying to make is that you know over the course of, of two years now, We've seen a similar rhetorical strategy employed of, of characterizing the other in ways that, that denigrate them, um, which, you know, in and of itself is sort of a, a, a violent use of language, if you will. Um, but what, what, what I think is a bit more concerning is it shifted from being directed towards individuals where there's actual, you know, battle going on because of an election to going towards groups of people um, where it's not a battle, it's just a public discourse. And so, you know, that sort of means in a sense that if you're not adopting a certain political or a certain um, viewpoint um, that's aligned with the president, he's viewing that as a battle rather than an opportunity for dialogue. And he's defining the people 
um, that would be, you know, in dialogue with him where, you know, uh, behaviors might be questioned or policies might be questioned as being part of an other group uh, that is. In fact, enemies. Yes. uh, Leading the invasion, for example. And so then and so then the implication of that is you start to say, well, how can you ever have, um, you know, a public dialogue about public policy if. The starting point for that dialogue is defining the other side of it as being uh, somehow so inferior that they don't even deserve to be in the conversation. I mean, that that means there is no opportunity for dialogue. I think this affects um, politically both sides of the aisle, so to speak, because I, while I think that the president certainly does this to great degree, I mean, this is something where the blame can go all the way around sure. because of the state of where we're at and politics in the United States. And then in response to what you've just described, we somehow and sometimes uh, characterize the person engaging in that behavior as racist mm-hmm. or uh, misogynist or, right. or we put labels on that person and they m- might be deserved but it reduces things down to a label. Not not to behavior. Yeah. Talk about that because you know we're so into labeling things yeah. and people and and other groups as as you just described, but we're really not talking about the substance of right. what they're talking about. We're not talking about the substance of racism or the substance of misogyny. We're we're talking about just the labels. Yeah, and I and I think that it also uh, you know in a in a large sense is looking at um, the label as being, you know, we, we look at the past and then slap on a label to someone and then that sort of shuts down the dialogue in many respects rather than, um, you know, um, trying to think about issues that are deeply important to the country like issues of racism, uh, race relations, uh, the glass ceiling, et cetera, rather than trying to think about how uh, we could look forward to a better society. You know, I mean, that's not where the dialogue is at because the labels sort of stop that type of dialogue. Um, which is incredibly unfortunate. Um, I, I guess you know what I would say is that this act of labeling again is is drawing a, a very dark uh, and 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 hard boundary uh, between who's with us and who's not with us. And, um, and 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 I guess the point that I would make as a communication scholar is that su- such boundaries are rhetorically impermeable. It's not. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to have true dialogue across those boundaries, uh, and that 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 is concerning. I think that the recent Supreme Court uh, Supreme Court nomination that took place that that whole proceeding, um, you know, that stark boundary started to get permeated just a bit when um, there was a one week delay to try to understand mm-hmm. what the facts were, and you almost for a couple days, about a twenty four hour period, thought, okay, the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, all of a sudden said, let's just stop and try to figure the right answer to this question out. Now, as that process unfolded, I think that the boundaries came back up and the dialogue stopped. It became a time of retrenching. It did. And, it did. And, and, and firming up. 
It did, positions. very much so. But just for a moment, yeah. you saw a couple of those senators that were literally uh, going um, into a back room to talk to one another to try to figure out a reasonable path forward. Um, you know, and that's that's an example of the boundary breaking down. But unfortunately, that's the exception rather than the rule right now. Uh, and, that, and that's concerning. I, I think um, uh, your question might be going in this direction uh, anyway, but but l- let me keep going and talking Please. about some of these uh, linguistic um, sort of um, uh, screens, if you will, about how, how individuals are being characterized. So, you know, the other question you might ask, so if one of the implications of, of these rhetorical camps are that the boundaries are impermeable, we have less of an opportunity for dialogue, the next question is, does that start to have negative effects on our culture? And, you know, certainly some of the examples that I have raised already, it, it shows that Washington is in a bad state in terms of being able to truly um, uh, present a reasonable way of running the country. But but when you look at um, some of the uh, instances of violence that's happened in the last week, um, all of them horrible, um, you know, you can't draw a a direct link between this language system um, that is, you know, being employed and and the violence that's ensued. However, uh, I think that you could certainly make an argument that the language and terminology that is used creates a rhetorical environment, or in my words, it reshapes the narrative that people are belonging to in a way that could make the predisposition of violence more likely to happen than it would have been otherwise, right? And so you can't say that um, the language of any particular individual would have caused um, necessarily that person to start sending out pipe bombs or that person to go into a synagogue and and murder people. Um, But you could start to say, is the language that we're using to talk about each other right now causing individuals to think that others are somehow less human than them, which then makes it more likely that they could reason in their own mind a, a, a path forward that would make them become more violent. What soldiers do during time of war. Absolutely, yeah. Dehumanize the the Dehumanize the opponent, yeah. And and so that's the part that I think, uh, you know, again, you can't draw a dotted line to connect those. It's not a causal relationship, but the rhetorical climate that we're in right now, um, in my estimation, makes acts of violence um, more likely to happen than not. Um, in isolated situations like this because of the way that people are interpreting the language that they're hearing over and over and over again. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream, and in every medium and by all means, it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. 
This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I talked to David Brooks from the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was interesting in this context. He was talking about how relationships and communication is so much better on a grassroots level mm-hmm. that people are actually connecting with each other, and they're working on community projects. And he's traveled all over the country mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. To, to see this. They seem to be traversing that divide that you've been describing because there's a human relationship right. between the people. Back to your family in, mm-hmm. in southern Kansas. Uh, we can't get to that on a national level. And and he was basically saying, I don't know that we can get back to it on a national level. But the local level, it's working. Right. I think that, you know, on a local level, um, we do see, I think, um, you know, there's always been negative campaigning. Oh, sure. And, and you know, you've, you've been around enough yeah. um, to, to know that that happens. So there's always been negative campaigning. Um, and, and, you know, we're seeing that currently in some of the elections in Athens, Ohio, um, in the way that uh, different sides of issues, not, not people, but issues on the ballot are being um, debated. So having said that, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're historically, I think, because of the fact that you live next door to individuals, right? They're in your neighborhood. They're, your kids play together. I think there's always been an orientation that, that despite uh, political differences at the local level, you think about what's best for the community. Um, you try to make reasoned judgments about, you know, your neighbors as well as yourself. But when you go up to um, – and I think maybe that's even true at the state level, Tom. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think yeah. about state politics, um, you know, certainly um, there are some exceptions to this, and some of the um, in, in, in some of the states where they've had really uh, debilitated um, legislatures. But but as I think about the state of Ohio, um, which you know the legislature here leans conservative, right. but I feel like the state at least has the conversation about what's best for the state with all these different perspectives coming and together. getting something done. And, and Getting, and getting things done. And so you look back on the – well, I've lived here since 2001, and and, and politically, um, I would have to say that Ohio, you know, from my perspective at least, is a pretty high-functioning state in terms of how the state operates itself, um, which is great. But you get to the national level, and it's sort of this abstracted politics in Washington viewpoint. And so I think it's easy for people – that are out in the heartland, uh, basically anywhere outside the beltway of Washington, yeah, D.C., right. to sort of look at what's happening in Washington as being, you know, sort of like a reality show that's going on. I mean, you know, yeah, on a direct sense, I know that what happens in Washington affects me. We go to war because of decisions that are made But I can't there. relate to those people. But I can't relate to those people, yeah. You know, um, I remember um, getting a chance to meet 
uh, both Bob Dole and Nancy Landon Kassebaum, which again both dates me and also gives you an idea of where I grew up. But but when I met them, you know, it wasn't just a hi and shake their hand and and you know it was a politician, so I can't talk to him. I mean, I remember with both of those senators, um, I had a chance as you know a pretty young person um, to be able to have a conversation with them that was deeply impactful for me. Um, you know, I I saw both of them as being individuals that I not only respected but you know, when I started voting, I voted for them, despite the fact that I grew up in a Democratic household. Um, same thing with John Carlin, who was a um, Democratic governor in Kansas, had a chance to meet him and deeply respected him. And so, you know, that idea of being able to know who the people are and relate with them on an individual level is extremely important. That happens at the local level. It happens at the state level. Um, it happens less now so with individuals who are part of the national political scene uh, than I think it did in years past. And, um, you know, I think that's something that makes what goes on in Washington seem somewhat abstract to all of us. It makes it seem like we're powerless to change it. Uh, it makes it seem like um, there's not really much that you can see that would happen for good uh, moving uh the politics in Washington in a better direction uh, because it is sort of a beast unto its own. I don't believe that. I mean, I believe that if the grassroots uh, people out in um, the heartland and, and elsewhere, um, you know, started to say, we expect better from our politicians. We expect them to um, be able to engage in authentic debate about political issues um, so that all the sides of an issue are understood and deliberated on so that the best decision is made. I think that if we set higher expectations, they would start to listen. But but um, that's not the case right now because, you know, right now we're in these tribes that just says you're either with me or against me. And it doesn't get to that next level of dialogue where we can, you know, set those those mischaracterizations of human beings aside and say we need to think about what's best for the future. Let me ask you a, a different sort of question. You're, you're a dean of a major uh, college of communication, the Scripps College of Communication here at Ohio University. Uh, you and I look at things through a certain lens that we've been talking about. I'm a bit older than you, but, but we have similar lenses mm -hmm. uh, that we look at things through. Uh, a young person, 18 to 22 to 23 to uh, on up with graduate students, they have a different lens. They, they, so do they have different expectations of what the debate is? Do they feel as perhaps uh, my word aggrieved as we do about the way things are? I, you know, it, it's it's hard to uh, paint a a wide brush on a generation, um, and and you know, as in in the podcast that I do on teaching matters, we try to avoid that because right. it's not fair. However, having said that, you know, there's a lot of um, studies of the current generation of young students, so the students that are in um, you know high school right now, getting mm -hmm. ready to go to college, also some of the you know the groups of the cohorts of students that are in college already. There's a lot of interesting you know, research sort of comes to the conclusion that the generation that is coming into adulthood right now um, does deeply value personal connections um, that, you know, despite the fact that they're on their phones and using social media during all waking hours, um, the connections that they establish are very important to them. So that's one characteristic that I think is notable. A second characteristic is that there does appear to be 
some sense among uh, the younger students um, that there is a there is an importance to the world around them that they have to take responsibility for. And so the idea that the environment is important, the idea that other human beings are important, seems to be something that is an instilled value within many of the students in this age group. Um, So if you put those two things together, that relationships matter and that there is something that I am beholden to that is larger than me, um, that, that does sort of paint a potential context through which that generation could start to say, we expect more from the people that are running the country. And I, and I really do think it comes down to that. I don't think that any, any individual politician can, can necessarily change what's going on. But I do think that at a grassroots level, if, if, the, if the population of the United States simply starts with the assumption that we expect better um, from the people that run our country um, and, that, and that guide um, you know, significant practices um, in the private sector, in, in religious circles, et cetera, we expect more, then, then I think that's a pretty powerful message that transcends um, and, and provides a chance for, um, I guess, what I would call rehabilitation of public dialogue um, so that these, these diametrically opposed camps um, start to become less important than the idea that we can do so much better if, if we actually put full faith effort towards doing that. And, it, and, and setting an expectation that is that clear um, to me is, um, is very powerful and, and more powerful than saying, I want to find the best candidate. It's really more about trying to find um, people that will espouse the or recognize the fact that they are held to a higher standard if they are given uh, my vote and and i think that's what really it comes down to and i do i think that this generation coming up could be more likely to do that um i i think so and i don't know that it's because they're different in any fundamental sense but but of course they've been growing up and seeing um I can't help but think that they haven't grown up in an era where they've seen that something just doesn't seem to be working right. Um, and if their personal values are that the world around them is important, in fact, maybe you know something that they should go through a level of some sacrifice for, much like the greatest generation uh, in pre-World right. War II did, then, then maybe that's the generation like the World War II generation that will come out and say, we, we as a country and we as people leading the country need to be held to a higher standard of excellence. Um, that, that, that's what my hope is. Because it, we're not heading there now. <laughs> and, no, no, and I, I I, I'm glad that you gave me a ray of sunshine at the end of the tunnel <laughs> uh, but because I, I was pretty much uh, shrouded in, in doom and gloom by the situation that we're in. You, you, you talked about your podcast. Uh, you do a podcast called Teaching Matters, and I know you look at how people learn and how people – teach in, in a new age and how that evolves. Do you see the role of in K through 12 uh, teachers trying to teach this uh, civil discourse is, for want of a better term, or inclusion verbally? Uh, is that something that's a priority? Uh, definitely. I mean, and I, and I wouldn't even though I personally would choose to use words like inclusion as being a part of that, I think you could even say that, you know, at, at, at its heart, great education is putting students in a context where 
within a safe setting of a school environment, they're able to go through um, uh, the walks of life in a way that forces them to learn how to interact with others, to learn how to literally play in the sandbox well, but as you get older, that means something different, right? Um, it, it It forces students to confront um, challenges that are microcosms of larger challenges they will face uh, in their future. So, you know, John Dewey, who uh, is somebody that, you know, I always look to as being uh, a person that kind of got it right in the way that he characterized what education should be. Now, he was the Dewey Decimal guy or not? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay. I don't right. believe so. Uh, but I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, no, he, he, was, he was a philosopher um, that wrote a lot of books about um, this topic of education teaching and learning um, in the early 1900s. And he was deeply influential in really all the modern fields looking at education. But to me, um, what what was most important about what Dewey said about education was that, you know, the school um, should provide the context um, that will let students learn how to lead life. And that's through learning the subject matter of the school, but it's also learning how to um, have a good argument with somebody else that doesn't result in a fistfight. It's, it's through having disagreements that you work through. And so, you know, from his standpoint, um, a school is a place that sort of equips you with, uh, with, with the tools for living. Um, and it does, th- does so by being authentic to the world that surrounds it. And <clears throat> you know, with that perspective, I think that, you know, if you're if you're a K-12 educator, if you're a higher education person, that that has a fundamental implication that when you're crafting your lesson plans, um, that those lesson plans should not be sort of abstract lessons. They should be lessons about what it is like to live. Now, that doesn't mean that it ascribes to any particular political viewpoint or social viewpoint, but but it sets a context that is realistic for the students. It sets a context that lets them understand that the lessons that they are learning will be impactful for them as citizens, for them in their careers, um, will help them advance in their profession, uh, will help them have better relationships with their loved ones. You know, that that's what schools should do. And and I and, you know the great thing about teaching matters is that I get to hear stories over and over and over again from teachers and students right. about how this is actually happening, you know, across the um, educational spectrum, despite all of the federal, state, and local regulations that govern um, what goes on in the schools and the classrooms, teachers are finding a way to make learning, I think, realistic for their students you know, at a, at a higher rate, if you will, um, than maybe before. They're they're re recapturing Dewey's spirit of having the school being a uh, a laboratory for life, and that's exciting to me. And I think that it's exciting um, for students because you know, again, if this upcoming generation um, could aspire to be the next great generation um, that will change the face of of who we are as a country and a world, um, I think that starts with um, the students in the schools right now understanding that what they're learning is not um, an abstract problem to be solved on a piece of paper, but it's a it's a key to unlocking something that will be important in their future. Um, and, and I see a lot of great teachers doing that or helping students understand that for themselves. Well, that's a breath of hope. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, you've certainly uh, illuminated a, a otherwise gloomy area for us. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, I think that um, – 
you know, as we think about the world that we watch, I mean, you know, one of the great things that all of us can do, uh, whether we're uh, listeners of this podcast or teachers or, or whatever, um, is, you know, we need to pay attention to the discourse that surrounds us. And, um, and we need to understand in our own mind um, that there are parts of that discourse that we are going to really disagree with. Um, and, and that's fair. Um, there's a lot of what I see that I disagree with. I think that at the same time, <clears throat> understanding that through that disagreement, not um, writing off individuals that we're in conversation with. Um, I might disagree with a politician um, vehemently, um, but I'm not going to write off an entire political party because of that, right? And and that's a place that I think we all need to get to because that's, again, I think how public dialogue can flourish once again. Um, and it doesn't mean that I... Um, wouldn't argue vehemently against a certain politician, but it also doesn't mean that I would say that a certain political party should be, um, you know, exterminated or abandoned, or um, that we have to beat them at every uh, every every opportunity. Because you know, frankly, there might be some of those politicians that are part of the solution, right? And so, you know, I think that's the way of thinking. They aren't that inherently evil. They are not inherently evil, and and I think that you know, if if, if I can adopt that viewpoint and many other people can that's the light at the end of the tunnel for all of us appreciate your time you bet today we've been talking with dr scott titsworth dean of the scripps college of communication at ohio university we've been talking about the importance of words in public discourse and how words can spread hate Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. WOUB also has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system. Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. You can skip... You can subscribe to this new podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or at the NPR Podcast Directory.